Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 7. We'll continue with our sermon series on the greatest sermon ever preached, and that's Christ's Sermon on the Mount. There have been some other amazing sermons preached since, since then, probably most notably a sermon in 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut, preached by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This is the greatest sermon ever preached, and we're moving right along through it. This is the 36th sermon in the series. We'll have a few more, God willing. While you're turning there, let me just remind you that we're now in the application phase of Christ's sermon. He has finished his exposition and his exhortation, and every good preacher following Jesus' example is going to draw the net and say to his audience, to his hearers, in so many words, now what are you going to do about what you just heard? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about the choosing between the narrow way and the broad way, as we looked at last week? Jesus says, will you follow me, or will you follow the crowd? Because you can't do both. No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one, love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You and I simply cannot afford to be cavalier about these matters placed before us that are applications of the truth Jesus has given. There are so many deceitful influences out there, both within our hearts and outside of us. And so, as we'll read today, Jesus says, beware, beware. False prophets are always present. In fact, they're just outside the straight gate we talked about last week. They're just just outside the gate. So, in verse 15, that's what he says, beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening or ravenous wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down, Jesus said, and cast into the fire. Verse 20, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. He repeats that statement. It is not incidental that Jesus has spent most of his message, the Sermon on the Mount, setting forth teaching about the true practice of righteousness. That's the theme, righteousness. Okay. And this is not just kingdom righteousness. This is not just the way it's going to be in, in the sweet by and by and the halcyon days to come. No, no, this is what God expects now, okay? If we relegate the Sermon on the Mount to the kingdom age or to some other people in some other time, we have missed it. He sets forth authentic righteousness, and now he talks about false righteousness, false teaching. You've heard it said both from my lips behind this pulpit, but also from other guest preachers we've had. I know I remember some 
and I'm glad they say it, they remind us often, the government agency in charge of detecting and prosecuting counterfeiters is which one? Secret Service. Same ones who guard our president. It's not the FBI. It's the Secret Service. And how do they do that? How do they train their professional agents to recognize counterfeit money? Because that's a big threat to our system. Secret Service agents train people to detect counterfeit not by studying all of the various kinds and methods of producing counterfeit. They look at the genuine legal tender stuff until they know it inside and out, backwards and forwards. I think that's interesting. Anything that deviates from the true must be rejected, right? Anything. That's true spiritually. You don't have to become an expert in a false cult to know it's wrong. If any preacher or author, to borrow the language of Scripture in Isaiah 8, verse 20, are listening, if any preacher or author speaks not according to the law and to the testimony, it is because there is no light in them. The Bible doesn't say there's some light in them, there's some common grace, so we've got to give them some, cut them some slack and study them. Uh-uh. No. I heard a, a preacher that knows better say that recently, and it just galled me. Study the Word. Study the genuine article. Master this book. And then you'll be able to see anything that deviates from it and reject it. A true shepherd is charged with protecting his sheep. And Jesus said it in John chapter 10 when he sees a wolf coming, he puts himself at risk to protect those sheep, to warn and to defend. And any true under-shepherd will do the same thing. I take that solemn charge seriously. And so you've, many of you have been here 20 years or more, maybe even the whole time I've been pastor, 23. And you know that I will name names at times. Some people get offended at that. Some people think I'm uncharitable or jealous or mean or unloving. Some have told me that before they left. I appreciate them coming to see me and telling me why. But this is one of the risks that I run in being a shepherd. I must protect the sheep. I do not want any of you to be led astray and taken advantage of. And sometimes our love is misconstrued, misunderstood, to be harshness or judgmentalism. And I don't know how often I've gone home and reflected on the Apostle Paul's words to the Corinthian believers when he said this, the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. And I think, well, okay, I'm in good company. If that happened to Paul too. 
you know, no one can see into another's heart. So how can we discern false teachers if we don't know what's in their heart? What is their modus operandi? What do we need to know to be protected? Because to be forewarned is to be forearmed. I wish to give you three sobering facts that are the main points of this passage. I know you can outline things all kinds of ways, but these are the main points. If you don't cover these three points, you've missed something. Number one, false teachers will arise from among the ranks of the true. Number two, false teachers will eventually show their true colors. And number three, false preachers, false prophets will meet an awful end. Jesus teaches those things principally in this passage. False teachers will arise from among the ranks of the true. We've all heard the expression, the Trojan horse. That's used a lot. It refers to something that happened 700 years before Christ when the Greeks did an inside job trying to capture the ancient city of Troy, and they were inside this Trojan horse, and then they got out of it and conquered the city. But the idea of hiding and then conquering from within, that's been around a long time. Jesus warned of enemies that would arise from within His church so that His true disciples would be ready after his ascension, to defend the truth. And right off the bat here in verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets which come unto you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening or ravenous wolves. The word beware, it's a very interesting word. Um, first time this particular word is, is used in, in the New Testament. Of course, we're in Matthew in the early chapters, which is the beginning of the New Testament, so that's not unusual. But the word beware literally means if you took a literal rendering of it, to hold the mind. Hold the mind. It speaks of being fixated on something. When you are aware of danger, you will beware of it, right? I know if my wife thinks there's a mouse loose in the house, she's not going to be thinking about anything else till I get that mouse caught. Yeah. Amen. So some of you need to go home and check, check your house. You just can't think of anything. You can't sleep. You can't think of anything else. You can't do anything else. When you're really aware of the danger, you're going to be aware of it. These false teachers are wolves in sheep's clothing, Jesus said. They look like sheep. They say, bah, like sheep. They seem so innocent and innocuous. And these guys would pass for your next-door neighbor or grandfather. But inwardly, they are ravening wolves eager to devour. They're wicked. They're predatory. But the point Jesus is making is they're seldom suspected. You know why? They arise from within. One of the main reasons. And this is brought out in other passages in the New Testament and in the Old. Would you turn to Acts chapter 20? Acts chapter 20, we'll read verses 29 and 30. Please keep your finger in Matthew 7, 
be going back and forth between Matthew 7, Acts 20, but primarily between Matthew 7 and the passage we read at the beginning of the service, 2 Peter chapter 2. But in, cha- in chapter uh, 20 of the book of Acts and verse 29, while you're turning, let me give you the setting. The Apostle Paul is hastening to get back to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, for the feast of Pentecost, and he's giving a touching farewell address to some elders in the city of Ephesus who had come down to the seaport town of Miletus to save Paul some traveling. They wanted to see him. There's a touching farewell here. And in verse 29, Paul says to these elders, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. That's not all. Look at verse 30. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things, distorting the truth, these savage wolves, to draw away or to lure disciples after them. Do you see it's an inside job? It's an inside job. And then the passage we read earlier, but turn again there to 2 Peter chapter 2, the first two verses. Peter warns of the same thing in his general epistle. The women of the word class is studying 2 Peter. They're going to get a double dose today. I hope it's reinforcement and not interference, okay? Peter warns of the same thing in his general epistle. But there were false prophets also among the people, so he's reflecting back to the Old Testament times, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of, their destructive ways. Please notice These were not just charismatic outsiders. When I say charismatic, I'm not talking about theology. I'm talking about their personality. They were not uh, people from the outside that just came in and by their personality and and, and sheer force of, of their persona, they just swept people off their feet. No, that wasn't it at all. These were men who rose to prominence among the flock, and they had a secret agenda of sowing damnable heresies among them. Would you please notice how they earned the trust of these people that they were fellowshipping with? They did it by their fair speeches. That phrase is found in Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, if you want to turn there quickly. Paul is giving his farewells to the church at Rome just as he was giving farewells to these elders at at Miletus from Ephesus. But he feels constrained to interrupt with a warning. In the middle of all these people saying, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, salute so-and-so. And then in the middle, it almost seems out of place, he gives this warning. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine, to the teaching which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches, maybe you have a translation that says, by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. But the simple means the naive, the unsuspecting. Do you think that still happens? I think it happens more than ever. Since I've been pastor here, 
we've had several speakers to come through who, for the most part, we've had godly men. I sure thought they were godly. In some cases, they proved to be otherwise. There were some men who have come through and preached from this pulpit, and they just bowled everybody over with their knowledge of the Word and their spiritual gifts and how smooth and positive and relational they were, including me. But although they did not preach heresy, eventually it came out after they'd been here that they were not right morally, and in at least two instances, they were not moral even when they were here. That shakes me up a little bit. I think it ought to shake all of us up. Let's not be deceived by smooth talkers. In independent Baptist churches, we're not talking about those people that are far out. Now, I'm not advocating that we should all be paranoid and just suspicious of everybody. Remember when we had to check your temperature and sanitize you when you came in during COVID? You know, I think about what if we had somebody there with a magnifying glass? Let me see if you're a false teacher. Let me examine your credentials here. No, we can't do that. But we need to be aware of the fact that Satan sows his seed too. As we talked about when we went through the parables of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, one of them is Jesus gave the interpretation. He said, Satan sows his tares among the wheat, and these tares are the children of the wicked one. Matthew 13, 38. Satan hides his dark intent in the cloak of Christian piety. And these false teachers seek the world, not the Lord Jesus Christ. These false teachers know that Christians are easy to fool. They really are. We're some of the most trusting people in the world. These false teachers know that they are prohibited from judging. As Jesus said here in the first part of Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged. And they'll be sure to remind us of that at just the right moment. These false teachers are likely to be deceived themselves. They use orthodox Christian terms and lingo. And they really think, how could anybody find fault with them? If somebody finds fault with them, it must be that they're jealous of them or they just wish they had their sway over people. Paul told Timothy that in the last days there would be those who would be deceiving, are you listening, and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3.13. Most people in the pew never imagine who the false prophets are in their midst. They never suspect them. They never imagine their faults. A good case in point to remind us of that is the fact that the 11 disciples did not suspect Judas even at the very last. When Jesus announced and it it, it dropped like a ton of bricks one of you shall betray me. You can just heard a collective gasp go. 
Did they all look at Judas? No. Every one of them said, is it I? Could I be so dastardly disloyal to my master as to betray him? Could I have such, should I be so wicked? That, and they expressed deep distrust of their own heart. I don't think I'm exaggerating just for the, for the sake of creating a sensation here to say that the, the, the thought of the, of the other 11 was Judas, not Judas. That's unthinkable. He's such a pleasant guy. He's willing to do some of the unsung tasks as, the, as treasurer. He has to go and buy things and get them ready. Far more than we have to do. He went out with us and, and preached the gospel of the kingdom. He cast out demons. He cleansed lepers. Even Thomas, who is naturally negative and doubting in his natural disposition, the Bible doesn't say that he suspected Judas. Do you think things have changed for the better in the church today? Why then are we shocked when sons of faithful preachers, I mean, they come from good family stock and they turn out to be false prophets? And I already warned you I'm going to name names today. Jesus did. Paul did. Peter did. John did. So I'm in pretty good company. Andy Stanley, son of Charles Stanley, not the one that used to be here. But the well-known preacher, pastor of the First Baptist Church, Charles Stanley, that is, in Atlanta, who just passed away six months ago. His son, Andy Stanley, who pastors 38,000 people, that's the average number they have on a Sunday morning in the eight campuses of his church, the North Point Community Church in the Atlanta area is a false prophet. The wolf has come out of the closet. He openly questions the reliability of Scripture. It all started, and he shocked people, when he became critical of expository preaching. Then in 2018, which may seem like a long time ago, but it doesn't seem like the way to me, Andy Stanley came out and said, we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. Check me out. In recent weeks, Pastor Andy Stanley has welcomed and defended two homosexual men who are married to male partners, having them speak at his unconditional conference for parents of LGBTQ plus children. What's the point I'm making? From among your own selves, men shall arise. Do you know where the heresy of baptismal regeneration came from as far as Protestant circles? By baptismal regeneration, I mean the, the false teaching that you have to be baptized to be saved. It's not only found in the Roman Catholic Church, it's found in some Protestant circles. Where did it come from as far as the Protestant teaching of it in America is concerned? It came from a renegade Baptist by the name of Alexander Campbell who came from Ireland to America in the early 1800s. His disciples became known as Campbellites. And they started groups known as, variously, the Disciples of Christ, but probably more familiar to us in the southern Bible belt, the Churches of Christ. You see a church that says the Church of Christ? If they believe what they're supposed to believe, they believe what Alexander Campbell 
the heresy he went off on. You have to be baptized to be saved. He was a Baptist. He started out as a Baptist. You know where the Seventh-day Adventist cult came from? A Baptist. By the name of William Miller. He became a deist. And then he was supposedly converted in 1815. He started studying Daniel's 70 weeks And he became convinced that the second coming of Christ would take place, are you listening, on October the 22nd, 1844. He studied the charts. He was sure of it. His followers wanted to make it easy on Jesus, so they dressed in white and gathered on top of a a hilltop. And you know what did, well, not what happened, you know what didn't happen. Jesus didn't come. And William Miller was honest enough to say he was wrong. And it looked like his group was going to be so disappointed that they would just disband. But a a sickly young girl by the name of Ellen G. White comes along and salvages the movement. She's regarded as a gifted prophetess. And she says it wasn't the date that was wrong. No, 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 William Miller didn't get the date wrong. Don't, Don't disband yet. What he got wrong was what happened on that date. He said it wasn't that Jesus was going to come back to earth to claim his own. It was that he was going, he entered the heavenly sanctuary to begin an investigative judgment of the believer's sins. That is heresy. If your sins weren't judged on Jesus when he died on the cross, you're in deep trouble. That's how the Seventh-day Adventists got started. And we get all focused on the Seventh-day Sabbath and whether or not Constantine changed the day and blah, blah, blah. And on and on I could go telling you how from among us, American Baptists have sprung up some of the most egregious, radical, false teachers of religious history who have caused thousands if not millions to stumble over them into the hell that most of them didn't even claim to believe in. It's still happening. And it will continue to happen until Jesus comes. And only those who do as John tells us to do by inspiration test the spirits. The King James says, try the spirits by the Word of God in the light of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And beware of false prophets, as Jesus warned. Only such will not be deceived by these people that most never even suspect. I'm going to shock you. I'm not doing it for the shock factor. I'm doing it because I was deceived for a while. In recent years, men associated with the institution that is considered to be the bastion of fundamental dispensationalism, Dallas Theological Seminary, codified a heretical doctrine that amounts to a Baptist purgatory. These men tout what they call as free grace, but it's really cheap grace. And they have a problem with those references 
that Jesus made to outer darkness in the Gospels. They talk about the children of the kingdom being cast into outer darkness or servants of their Lord being cast out, being unprofitable, being cast out into outer darkness. So they came up with this heretical teaching that there's a second tier to heaven. And outer darkness really means the darkness outside. And it amounts to a Baptist purgatory. And they create an eternal condition that is less than heaven. I'm not joking. Followed by many. Had not John MacArthur, bless his heart, raised a stink about it and written the book, The Gospel According to Jesus, no telling how many people would believe in a two-tier salvation and a split-level heaven. It's quiet. Folks, we got to have our spiritual spectacles on. we got to be discerning. False teachers will arise from among you, from within you, Jesus said. And hardly anybody will suspect them. The number two lesson here is false teachers will eventually show their true colors. Not just once. If Jesus said it once, that would have been enough. But he said it twice here in verse 16 and verse 20. Ye shall know them by their what? Fruit. Fruits. Plural. Now that means we don't need to look into the heart of someone to know if they're a false prophet. All we need to do is wait until the tree bears its fruit. And in most cases, you won't have to wait long. Things bear fruit periodically in a cycle. A thorn bush is not going to bring forth grapes, Jesus said. A thistle is not going to produce figs. So what's the lesson? Jesus is saying people cannot live for long under the cover of appearances. It's the very nature of false teaching that its purveyors can't keep it to themselves. It's like fire. It's got to spread. And in order to spread, it's got to have fuel to feed on or it's going to die. For example, a person who really believes that the initial evidence of the so-called baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues, you can put it down, they will not be content just keep it to themselves. They will not be content to just have their little private speakings like you would have some people over to your house for a private showing of a movie. No, they have, they've experienced such an emotional high that they have to, sh- to show off their new toy. And that's what one well-known evangelical preacher called it. Who ought to know better? I'm talking about John Piper. John Piper said a lot of good things. The difference that Jesus is describing here is not the difference between words and deeds of the false prophet. Are you listening? It's the difference between appearance and reality. A bad tree will bring forth bad fruit, and it will reveal itself in due time. So then what is the fruit of a false prophet? If you do any reading on this, you'll come up with there are two schools of thought. There are some who say that the fruit here refers only to their teaching or to their doctrine. There are those that say their fruit is a characterization of the kind of life they live. 
sinful lifestyle. For example, the famous expositor Alexander McLaren said, this is not a test to detect heretics, this is rather to unmask hypocrites. So I ask you this morning, which view is correct? Is the fruit of a false prophet their teaching, or is it their kind of lifestyle? I am not copping out when I tell you it's both. Fruits. Both elements are involved here. Both the fruit of the lips and the fruit of the life. We do greatly err if we say that the true exposition is all one or all the other. For example, if you say that the fruit of a false prophet is only his false teaching, then what are you allowing for? You are allowing for him to be a true child of God, but just be self-deceived. If, on the other hand, you say that the fruit of a false prophet is just his sinful life, then what are you doing? You are construing error to be, his serious error, to be just a matter of semantics, just quibbling about terminology which is exactly what many evangelicals do and why there is so little spiritual discernment in these days and why a lot of people do not want to come hear a preacher preach like this one is this morning. Both of these are important, so let's talk about both for a moment, okay? Both the heresy and the sinful lifestyle. The bad fruit of heresy will inevitably manifest itself. Now, some preachers you can listen to for several sermons in a row, and you will not find anything that you would object to, and you begin to get your hopes up that you can trust them. They use sound terminology. They talk about God and Jesus and the cross. They emphasize the love of God. They emphasize heaven. They emphasize justice. So far, so good. But just about the time you think you can trust them, oh, then they slip in their poison. Some of you have asked me about this guy, so I'm going to name him. What about John Hagee out of San Antonio, Texas? He's an outspoken friend of Israel. He just wrote a book. It's very popular right now because of all the atrocities that Hamas has perpetrated against Israel and the war going on there. It's probably going to go on for quite some time. The book is entitled, In Defense of Israel. And you would think, oh, wow, this, I need to read this. This is you know, I, I, we need to bless Israel. I will bless them that bless you, God said to Abraham. Okay, hold on a minute. Hear what Hagee himself says. I quote, this book will shake Christian theology. It scripturally proves that the Jewish people as a whole did not reject Jesus as Messiah. Huh? It will also prove that Jesus did not come to earth to be the Messiah. Huh? And since Jesus refused by word and deed to claim to be the Messiah, how can the Jews be blamed for rejecting what was never offered? End of quote. 18,000 people come to his church in San Antonio, Texas every Sunday, and probably most of them say amen when he says things like that, but I hope you know better. How can you profit from this false prophet, pun intended? He doesn't even believe that Jews need to be saved. Where does that fit in Romans? I'm here to tell you, folks, this is typical of false prophets. 
They almost always compartmentalize and thus they minimize sin. This is nothing new. This happened way back in the Old Testament when God told Jeremiah to weigh against those false prophets in chapter 6 of his prophecy. They're the ones that cry peace, peace to Israel when there is no peace. And what, did, what happened to Jeremiah? Was he appreciated for telling the truth? Oh no. He was thrown into a pit of mud while these false prophets were thrown accolades. As a whole, generally speaking, false prophets de-emphasize doctrine. They talk vaguely and generally. They rarely talk about the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, or the wrath of God. Millions are regaled by their utterances. They laugh, but no one trembles. How unlike the Apostle Paul, who when he was preaching to no less an honorable personage than the Roman, Roman governor Felix with his sister Drusilla present. As he reasoned, Paul reasoned of righteousness and temperance or self-control and judgment to come, this powerful governor, the Bible says, trembled. We don't see that anymore. Unless there's people trembling about to fall back into the arms of a faith healer. The bad fruit of heresy will come out. The bad fruit of sinful living will manifest itself. Bad preaching and bad living go hand in hand. The Apostle Peter really honed in on this union in 2 Peter chapter 2. We've looked at that several times. If you wish to look again, feel free to do so. For the sake of time, I'm going to keep on talking. In verse 3, he's describing the false prophets that he mentioned in verse 1. And he says this, And through covetousness shall they with feigned or deceptive words make merchandise of you. They will exploit you. Verses 14 through 18. Having eyes full of adultery. And that's not spiritual adultery, folks. That's talking about their lifestyle. It's talking about the way they look out at other people. And they cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. These are the ones usually victimized and exploited, unstable souls who are swayed by their personalities or their good looks or their smooth talk. And heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray following the way of Balaam and so forth, who love the wages of unrighteousness. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity through much wantonness, that means licentiousness, reference to their living, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. On and on it goes. It reads like it was written today of a corrupt... TV evangelist, doesn't it? While they promise them liberty, and these popular TV preachers today, for the most part, they promise people liberty. They talk about freedom in the spirit, and they smile from ear to ear. They talk, talk about getting rid of the demons of fear and guilt and bondage. There's a popular radio preacher over here in the Winston-Salem area, and he actually leads his congregation to repeat after him, shame off you, shame off of you. Like there's no place for shame at all. False prophets are often found to be not just immoral, but heinously wicked. Could I say this and hope you take me seriously and 
understand what they are not well-meaning but misguided people they're not their hearts are hopelessly depraved they are wicked they are ferocious they are eager to devour and ruin souls they are reprobate they are not salvageable that's what the bible says I don't know who's the first one to say this. I've heard it said by a number of people, and I've tried to trace it to its original source, given up. But it sure is true. That is this saying, a man's morality dictates his theology, not the other way around. A man's morality dictates his theology. And the Bible says in Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool hath said in his heart, not in his head, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God, literally no God for me. I will not have a God to rule over me. It's not that he's reasoned things out in his mind and he, he says there's no evidence for God and uh, even though he doesn't like to come to this conclusion, he's just resigned to it, no God for me. No, no, no. He's got a wicked bias in his heart that says, I will not have a God to rule over me. I do not want to give account to anybody. He hath said in his heart, there is no God. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. To quote Invictus, terrible poem. False teachers arise from the inside. False teachers will inevitably show their true colors But I hasten to add and conclude false teachers will meet a terrible end. Go back to our text, Matthew chapter 7, look at verse 19. Matthew 7, 19, Jesus said, Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Cast into the fire. Doesn't that square with what Jesus said in John 15, verse 6, talking about those branches that abide not in the vine, they're cast into the fire, they're burned up, they're devoured. Folks, don't don't twist that to try to conform to your preconceived theology. Fire means fire unless the context dictates otherwise. Peter echoes a a sense of the awful doom of false teachers in that same passage we've looked at several times, 2 Peter 2, verses 20 and 21. He states that the latter end of these false preachers is worse than their beginning. And he goes on to say in verse 21, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. If we really get a sense of the truth of what he's saying, you won't want to get very close to a false teacher. You'd be afraid lightning might strike you too. The best advice for us in dealing with with those in this category who are doomed would be what Paul said in Romans 16, verse 17, avoid them. We already read that verse. Just avoid them. Don't try to lock horns with them. Don't try to parley with them. Don't try to match wits with them. Unless you know you are filled with the spirit of wisdom like Stephen was and he could not be resisted. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was spot on when he said during the time of the greatest controversy and the attack on his ministry, if you've studied his life, you know about the downgrade controversy. It 
killed him. That's probably why he didn't live to be older than 57, I think. He said at the peak of this controversy and attack by his own denomination, he said, no protest can be equal to that of distinct separation from evil. That's why we're separated independent Baptists. Our duty as true believers towards men who profess to be Christians and yet deny the Word of God and reject the fundamentals of the gospel is, are you listening, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. We can't reason with apostates. I close by saying Christ's warning here is as relevant today as when He spoke it 2,000 years ago. Beware of false prophets. Why? Not only are they wicked, are they wicked, but because they're wicked, they are dangerous. You say, you're trying to create a sensation, Pastor. I wish I could. I wish I could scare every one of us till we were shaking in our boots as we left today. Because we need to be. The Bible says in the, in the little epistle of Jude, as you come to the close of that one chapter epistle, It says that we better be prayed up. We better have the fear of God in us when even we go after lost sinners to try to bring them into the fold if they've been influenced by false teachers. Because it it says, save them with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Why did Jude say that? Listen, it's because that is dangerous work. You better be prayed up and fortified or, or you could be sucked in. Will you pray with me? You say, preacher, you're pretty worked up. Yeah. Maybe we need that. Every once in a while, it does good to let have our blood boiled in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the warnings as well as the exhortations of Scripture. Thank you for Jesus, our good shepherd, who loves us and cares for us so much that he protects us against the wolves who would devour us and scatter us. Oh, Father, give us discernment and courage in these dangerous last days. Help us to stand and having done all to stand, as Paul said to the Ephesians. As Jude said in his little epistle, to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Oh, God, give us success in seeking to recover souls that are caught up in false systems. Unless something changes, they're going to go to hell stumbling over others who've mistaught them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's.